of independent thought my name is desmond price no matter where you are in the world i want to thank you for giving me a few minutes of your day to hear my thoughts as always we have a great show for you today now here are our topics hello everyone welcome back to another episode of independent thought my name is desmond price thank you all for tuning in for another episode and to the new people here who have never listened to my podcast before, thank you for checking out my podcast. I also want to give a quick thank you to all the subscribers for being subscribed and coming back to each and every episode. Now, you know, before we get started, I kind of just want to address why, well, slightly why I'm talking about this episode today. After covering qualified immunity last week, I honestly just needed a somewhat of a lighter topic. And so in the very beginning here, you're probably wondering why exactly am I bringing up this subject? But I promise there is a definite political reason to why I'm bringing up this topic today. So just stick with me for a little bit. It will all make sense in a few minutes. So today's episode is about seaweed farms. I know, not exactly what you were expecting from me, but this is the topic we're going with today, seaweed farming. Now, the sources for today's episode include the Financial Times, Euronews, CNBC, the Global Market Insights, uh, USC Wrigley Institute for Environmental Studies, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So, Let's just jump right in. We're going to talk about what you need to know about seaweed farms, why this is important, and why am I bringing this up now? So starting right off the top, I'm sure that mostly everybody knows what seaweed is, but just in case you don't, it's also referred to as macroalgae, and it is also known as marine algae. There happens to be up to 10,000 different types of seaweed or algae or kelp, whatever the name you want to use for it, that we know of currently in the world. There's lots of this stuff out there. And it is something that I normally don't think that much about. I have had, you know, roommates in the past who would go crazy over eating seaweed. I never was that interested in it. But apparently there is a host of benefits to seaweed that I def- you know, definitely did not know that much about. You know, one of the things that's cool about seaweed is the fact that in order to grow it, you actually don't need any kind of harsh fertilizers whatsoever. So in fact, all you need to grow seaweed is just sea seawater and sunlight. That's it. Just two things. Well, and some netting, you know, probably to hang it in the ocean where it sits. But that's about it. That's all you need to grow this stuff. On top of that, you know, as far as seaweed from a food standpoint, it's actually, for those who are interested, it's actually considered to be a superfood. And some dietitians consider it to be, you know, the most potent cleansing food found in nature. 
you know, particularly helpful with the elimination of heavy metals and toxins. And for those of you who think that maybe, you know, you're not ingesting metals on a day-to-day -day basis, I invite you to stop what you're doing and go check out the ingredients label on your lotions and your deodorants, and then let me know if you still feel that way. So definitely a good thing that this, you know, that seaweed is something that goes into your body, has like a really just a, a huge detoxing effort once it's ingested. Another cool thing about seaweed is the fact that it is used in a lot of meat substitutes as a binding agent, as well as a flavor enhancer. It produces that umame uh, flavor that is known to be the savory flavor that you get in some of these uh, meatless meats. I have had a couple of these, you know, they're actually surprisingly convincing. I'm not entirely sure if I'm on board yet, but I didn't hate it, you know, so it was definitely a new experience. And one of the also fun things about, you know, seaweed is that you can make bioplastics out of it. And that's kind of the transition that I want to talk about a little bit now is because on top of the fact that it can be a great, you know, like food, or it can also be used in, you know, like lotions, and it can be used in hair care products. You know, why we're talking about seaweed kind of right now is for its effects, you know, basically in the environment. So seaweed is environmentally restorative. And so you can use this stuff in so many different fashions that are going to be good for the environment as a whole. One of the ways that you can use seaweed that is environmentally beneficial is through its use uh, as a fertilizer. Now you can use it as a substitute now, because currently synthetic fertilizers that we use, you know, like to, you know, for our, for cropping here in America, uh, those synthetic fertilizers, you know, cause nitrous oxide to be emitted, which is a greenhouse gas, which has been known to be contributing to global warming as a whole. Seaweed can go into most fertilizers and kind of, well, they can actually replace synthetic fertilizers because they have an abundance of what is called growth regulating compounds. So this is actually a really important thing, not just for crops, but there's also something inside of seaweed that is good for animal stock as well. According to research that is done at UC Davis, you know, every single year, cows produce 220 pounds of methane, which is 28 times more potent in warming the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. Now, I know that a lot of us have heard about, you know, cows in regards to the Green New Deal specifically. I know that Republicans had a heyday talking about how the Green New Deal wanted to eliminate cows. But, you know, there is actually a general concern about the fact that cows do emit quite a bit of methane, uh, mostly from, from burping and from their waste. Uh, but fun fact, you know, again, about seaweed is that in 2016, James Cook University, which is based out of Australia, discovered that a particular type of algae, if you add it to cattle's food, it reduced their methane emissions by 99%. 99%. And, and when I was reading this earlier, I had that moment kind of pop into my head. If some of you like watched Family Guy when you were younger, 
where Peter like walked out of some building and he said, why are we not funding this? That, that's all I could think about in this moment. There is a university in Australia that has discovered a way to reduce methane emissions in cows by 99%, and that's not common knowledge like around the globe. How is that even possible? I, I'm sorry, I had to stop for a second and just like and focus on that because that's a really big breakthrough as far as I'm concerned. We should definitely be looking into that a little bit more. But you know, on top of that, you know, one of the things that is going on now is that some people are recognizing just all the different you know, aspects of seaweed that it can be beneficial for so many different areas of our economy. When we're talking about food, talking about fertilizers, talking about reducing impacts on the environment with bioplastics. So now seaweed farming is becoming more and more popular, uh, not just, you know, over in Asia, where currently the Asia Pacific region has more than half of all seaweed farms in the world right now, but now it's starting to become more popular here in America. And one of the companies that is trying to promote this here in our own country is called Green Wave. And I highly recommend checking them out. They have a website called greenwave.org where you can go and learn about all of their efforts to help people learn how to become seaweed farmers. They're a nonprofit and they were started by a fisherman who, you know, kind of left the profession of being, you know, like a, a deep sea fisherman because he was realizing these effects that overfishing was not only having on the ocean, but it's role playing in climate change altogether. In fact, I'm gonna let you listen to some of the brief words he has to say. I have a clip right here. We'll be right back in a second. You know, I never expected to grow vegetables underwater. Beautiful, huh? Now I'm a fisherman, work the high seas. And I, you know, I'm not an environmentalist in a traditional way. I'm a fisherman, I hunt and kill things. But my goal is to make a living on a living planet. I mean, there's no way I can run my farm, run my small business, unless I become a steward of the oceans and grow crops that are breathing life back into it. Smith started out in seaweed farming after years of fishing on the high seas and bearing witness to the degradation of the world's oceans due to overfishing and climate change. He turned to what he calls restorative ocean farming. Restorative or regenerative ocean farming is growing crops that breathe life back into the ocean. So just to reiterate what they were talking about in that video, you know, um, restorative ocean farming is growing crops that help the ocean heal from man-made effects. So we're talking about pollution, we're talking about overfishing, we're talking about climate change. And the most important thing to know, kind of like surrounding seaweed's effects on climate change, is that marine algae currently, at current levels, is creating 50 to 80% of our oxygen supply. And that is absolutely incredible to me. And, and first of all, I wanna address the range of that stat, 50 to 80%. I mean, that, that's a pretty huge range, but to be fair, even if we go to the absolute lowest end, even if it was only 50%, that's still incredible that we're getting all of that from seaweed. Something that I personally thought so little of, I wouldn't even have considered it as being one of the ways that we could solve climate change if I was, if you were to ask me, what can we do to help this planet? But 
I am glad that I'm learning about this now because, you know, seaweed, not only does it create all that oxygen, but in doing so, it also soaks up lots of carbon and nitrogen. And on top of that, it can help restore uh, ocean reef systems. A lot of scientists who study ecology think of it more as they are engines of restoration. And one of the, my you know, most favorite facts that I found while I was doing my research for this episode is that it can also be used for biofuel. Now, seaweed, according to the Department of Energy, they believe that it can yield more energy per acre than corn. And so again, the question has to become, why aren't we funding this? Like just why aren't we funding this? But at the same time, there are some companies that seem to be relatively interested as some might know that they've seen plenty of Exxon commercials where they're talking about how they are developing new technologies through algae right now. So there are some people who are apparently are catching on. But, you know, according to Dr. Charles Yarich, he's a professor at the University of Connecticut for ecology. You know, he claims that due to algae being photosynthetic, it is definitely reasonable to believe that we can sustainably transition away from fossil fuels with biofuels like that that can be derived from seaweed. Now, on top of that, it also happens to be one of the fastest growing organisms on the planet, growing one to two feet per day, per day. And so if we were to use it as an energy source, it grows fast enough to meet the demands that a global energy market like ours would need. Now, let's get down to the why exactly I'm bringing this up now. You know, I've told you some fun facts. This has basically been my Discovery Channel version of, let me tell you cool things about this ocean plants. But what does it have to do with politics, Desmond? Like, why are you talking about this now? You know, this is a political podcast. Explain to me how this has anything to do with politics, right? So, as you all know, I live in the state of Montana. And somewhere along the line, I got into uh, my senator's email chain. So Senator Steve Daines, Republican from Montana, I get an email from him like once a week. And I meant to unsubscribe from it months ago. I think I must have answered a survey somehow and got roped in. But I've been finding it to be relatively informative to know what the Republican senator from my state sends to his, you know, his believed to be supporters. I'm sure most of these people are. I happen not to be. But I'm reading what he sends anyway, because I want to know what it is that Republicans say to their voters. I am not one of them, but I am curious. And so this brings me to why I'm talking about all this today. Let me read to you an email that I got from Senator Steve Daines just back about like a few weeks ago, where Steve Daines talks about meeting with Montanans in eastern Montana after Joe Biden, our president, decided to cancel the Keystone Pipeline. So I'm going to read this email just now, where he says, this last week, I visited with business owners, local officials, school and hospital leaders, 
and workers in eastern Montana to hear directly how their lives have been impacted by President Biden's day one action to kill the Keystone XL pipeline. This decision has been detrimental to Montana communities, eliminating critical tax revenue and good paying jobs. With the stroke of a pen, President Biden yielded to radical environmentalists and harmed Eastern Montana. This doesn't make any sense because pipelines are the most environmentally safe way to transport oil and the Keystone XL pipeline would actually reduce, that's an italicize, transportation admissions. President Biden is ignoring the science and the facts and Montanans are bearing the burden. President Biden must reverse his decision. The impacts of this action are far reaching. And here's what I've heard from Montanans when I visited Eastern Montana last week. And then the rest of the email is him going through testimonials of him traveling through small towns in Montana, talking to people about how this cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline is affecting them. And some of this is actually pretty compelling testimony. There are people talking about how they're not going to have money for schools, how they're not going to have money for healthcare, how certain people are losing jobs, how they're afraid that they're going to lose their homes. And, and this is actually the crux of what is going on with the climate change debate here in America. Because we have two parties, basically, who have put themselves on both sides of the climate change argument. There are the Democrats who basically are saying climate change is real and we need to do whatever is necessary to stop the country from burning, basically. Not the country, but the world. Um, and then you have the Republican Party who says, well, the science is inconclusive, even though it's not. And the most important thing is we have to protect jobs. And so they turn this into a jobs debate every time. And this is actually a huge problem for Democrats because Republicans are actually pretty decent when it comes to learning how to take policies and bend the messaging in a good way for them. And Democrats seem to be incapable of an adequate rebuttal anytime that this happens. Because when, especially when you see this in debates, when they get onto a stage and you're talking about these issues, Republicans will just hit home with very you know, poignant facts, like what's gonna happen to these people's jobs if we go through all of this transformational, you know, like uh, changing out of our fossil fuels and getting rid of all the jobs that would come with it. Democrats seem ill-prepared to answer those questions. And I think that that is really kind of on them for not knowing how to answer these questions, because in my personal opinion, they do have the better policy here. We obviously do need to be addressing climate change. And so one of the things that I first want to say in regards to what my uh, Republican Senator Steve Daines here is trying to do is I want to just speak the truth, which is that there would be some economic pain if we're going to transition away from fossil fuels in this country. And that is a very real thing. And it's also something that people who were trying to craft the Green New Deal also were very cognizant of 
which is why the third section of the Green New Deal is primarily focused on what would be the economic impacts to so many Americans, you know, like when we do transition away from fossil fuels, which is why in the Green New Deal, they reference a jobs guarantee, universal health care, retraining, so on and so forth. If you are interested in learning more about the Green New Deal, I just did an episode on it back in February titled, What is the Green New Deal? So please feel free to go to that episode. I explain in detail all the things about the Green New Deal that you might be interested in. Also, for those who are still confused about it, I just wanna say one thing. The Green New Deal is not a bill. It is, it is not a bill. Go listen to my old episode, I explain it all. So the thing, the most important reason why I'm bringing this up now is because the main argument against moving away from fossil fuels for the Republican Party is the fact that people are going to lose their jobs, they're going to lose their way of life, they're gonna lose their mortgage, so on and so forth. And that's one of the things that drew me into this seaweed farm uh, discussion because seaweed farms are one of many new green jobs that can replace some of these fossil fuel jobs. In fact, the US has you know, more water territory than land. If you were to take all of the water that is considered to be part of the United States, it is actually more area than our land mass. This includes Alaska. And this area is actually known as the exclusive economic zone. And according to the World Bank, if we turned just 5%, 5% of this area into seaweed farms, we could generate 50 million direct jobs, 50 million. That would almost easily replace all of the energy jobs in our country. So the one of the things that, you know, we need to just like be very, very just, uh, just plain about is that when we're having this debate about climate change, you know, like, and there are bad actors, obviously, you know, in our Congress who want to always turn the climate change debate into a jobs debate. We can be very clear that transitioning away from fossil fuels doesn't mean that we're leaving people like homeless or jobless. There would be green jobs to replace these fossil fuel jobs. And these jobs are not that bad paying either. In fact, a single seaweed farm can net currently $90,000 to $120,000 a year. And that's just on current demand. That could go up dramatically if we start using it for more things in this country, including biofuels. And to start a farm currently only takes about $20,000, 20 acres of water and a boat. So we're not gonna be able to solve every single issue in regards to our energy crisis, you know, we, we don't have an energy crisis currently. We wouldn't, we would have one if we try to trans, transition away from fossil fuels immediately. But in the efforts to transitioning away from fossil fuels, we're not going to solve all of our problems with just one answer. It's not going to be just seaweed farming. 
It's not going to be just solar. It's not going to be just wind power. It wouldn't be just hydroelectric power. It, it's not going to be any just one thing, but it's going to be a combination of many things. But what I'm trying to illustrate through talking about seaweed farming is that this is one of many ways that we can utilize sustainable means in order to transform our economy away from fossil fuels. Because we don't need fossil fuels to go forward. We just don't know what else to do currently, but there are many options out there. And so I'm gonna end this segment with a little bit of what you can do because that's always the most important thing to know, right? Like what can we do as an individual, as a consumer? And it really is in this case about being a consumer because the most powerful thing that you can do is spending your money on products like this as more and more people spend money on things like seaweed and other kinds of sustainable means, I guarantee you that the market will actually notice that and they will go out of their way to invest more into these things. And as always, definitely share this information and don't let my episode here be the last piece of information that you learn about seaweed farms and other forms of you know, particularly sustainable ways that we can transform our energy economy, please do your own research. And please share this episode on your story on social media if you like this episode. So thank you for listening and don't forget to share. Now coming up in our next segment will be my conversation with my guest for this week. And for those of you who are new to the podcast and are unaware, my guest segments are typically unrelated to the conversation that I have in this original segment here. So my conversation with my guest will not be along the lines of climate change or of seaweed farming, uh, but please stay past the break and check out my next segment with my guest. And don't forget to listen to the commercial in the middle here for our sponsor this week, Bathing Beauties Beads. If you are interested in checking out my sponsor, please scroll up into the episode notes. Her website is in the description, as well as a promo code for anyone listening to this episode. You can get 15% off at checkout and they have shipping anywhere in the country. Thank you so much. We'll be right back from the break. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Bye. 
Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at Betty'sDivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. For my guest this week, I have Mr. Frank Styles from the 336 Pull Up Podcast. Frank is somebody that I found on Instagram recently from a, a mutual friend of ours, Janae, from the Confessions from a Red Couch Podcast. So, Frank, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, before we kind of like dive into what we were talking about that we were going to discuss today, uh, just tell everyone a little bit about your podcast. Like, what's it about? Why did you decide to start it? Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the creator of the 336 Pull Up Podcast. And basically, it's a podcast where we talk about everything. We have topics on relationships to dating to a little bit of politics, sports, and we do it in our own funny and uh, unique, sometimes ghetto ratchet way. Uh, but, but we, we get a lot of, we, you leave with a lot of gems, you know? So, um, one of the reasons I wanted to start this specific podcast was because prior to that, and it's still out there, so you guys can go and check it out if you choose to, but I had a more serious podcast, uh, called, uh, the Let's Be Honest podcast with Frank Styles. Uh, that one is really, really deep because I've had some, you know, phenomenal, you know, legendary interviews like Jane Elliott. Um, I had a guy on uh, to discuss uh, the uh, assassination of Don Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, which was very, very interesting in his take on who actually did it. So, but I wanted something, I was getting a little too serious. <laughs> and so uh, some of my people were like, no, we need, we need, you know, we, we don't want to talk about that stuff all the time. What, what about some funny stuff? So I figured I'd take the news along with everything that's going on and, and just make it funny. So people, people really, really gra uh, gravitated towards it. Hey, I love that. I mean, I think it's a great idea to have a second podcast. I actually had another podcast that I did before I came through with this one. And I sometimes still go back to it, which I kind of keep a little bit of a secret. But anyway, you know, in regards to your podcast, what exactly does 336 mean? Like, where did that title come from? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the 336 represents an area code uh, from where uh, I live, which is North Carolina, and actually Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, so when the podcast come on, you'll hear the theme song. Um, you know, it starts off 336 pull up. And then what you'll hear, you'll hear me say things reminisce to the Greensboro area, such as uh, Aggie City A&T, which is one of the best HBCUs uh, in the nation, uh, you know, North Carolina A&T. So the 336 is dedicated to the area code um, from where we stay. Okay, okay. And for those of you who are interested in Frank's 
podcast. As always, the link to my guest podcasts are always in the description. So make sure you scroll up into the episode notes to check out to check out Frank's podcast, the three three six pull up. Now, Frank, when we were talking about this episode beforehand, we were talking about some of the political narratives that exist, you know, like within the black community. And one of the narratives is that, you know, your vote doesn't matter or, you know, like your vote doesn't matter as much as you think it does. You know, why do you think that that narrative is something that's so common in the community and what exactly can we do about it? Well, there are a number of different things that uh, could cause that. Um, but in my opinion, I think some of it's ignorance. I think that you have a different generation of people that, don't understand the struggle of how we had to get here um, to be even be able to be able to vote, um, especially in the in the black community, because what ends up happening is people take bits and pieces of what they heard over time and then they come to the conclusion of what it is, you know, what they think it is. So if you look at, for example, the 2016 election, when Trump won, well, there was only a certain percentage of people that actually came out and voted. So they were like, it was the choice of Hillary or Trump. And someone was like, you know what? I'm not choosing either, so I'm going to stay home. So I think there are a lot of myths out there as my vote doesn't count. It doesn't matter. You know, some people think that the president is being dangled by strings by some higher power. Uh, like, you know, the, you know, you hear all things about the New World Order and all that crap. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that these past elections have shown that when we organize and we come together and research and understand how much voting impacts our everyday lives, that this process has shown that our vote does count. And there's evidence of that just very recently. You know, just looking back at these Georgia runoff elections, you know, we saw the black community basically come out in force and propel these two Democrat, you know, now senators to victory with a uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, you know, the crazy thing to me was, you know, they were able to down in Georgia get a hundred thousand more like black people to be registered to vote, you know, between the general election and the runoff election, which is just absolutely incredible to me. But I think it is basically illustrating the fact that people saw a state that they were told was going to go red flip. And people understood, I think, in a little bit into kind of this small context here that, you know, our votes really do matter. And so the, the question that I really have is, how do we kind of build off of that success where people understand that their votes really do matter? Because, you know, it's going to be a thing where in the future, these narratives will continue to come up that, you know, our votes don't matter. So how do we build off of what happened in Georgia and kind of move that into the future to combat these narratives as they will inevitably show up again? I personally truly believe that we have to organize the same way and take the same way that Stacey Abrams took her take her model of what she did in Georgia and do it in some other states uh, and educate those that want to know more about the power of the people and the vote, but also educate them on the things such as, hey, I'm a felon, I can't vote, which may not always be the case, or, you know, um, who, who are our elected, official, uh, elected officials locally? Uh, besides just the big one for the presidency, because a lot of times it's very, very important to vote to vote on a local level, find out who to find out who's representing you. And so I think if we took that model 
um, and did it in other states? Who's to say that some of these other southern states won't turn blue, such as Louisiana, you know, um, you know, Florida, you know, some of those places. You, you know, I think I think we've gotten we've become lazy when it becomes to when it comes to the way we used to do things. You used to see what you're seeing now from like Stacey Abrams are things that we used to do years ago. And if, if for some reason, I don't know if it's a technology thing because everything's online and you have social media, but we've gotten away from that. You know, we've, we've gotten away from that grassroots, um, you know, going out there and, you know, canvassing and going door to door and um, speaking with some friends in Atlanta and some people that are in the podcast world, that's what they were doing. Um, people, they were coming to your door and they were basically saying, hey, we noticed that you haven't voted yet. You know, are you going to get out and vote? And I think that's what we need to get back to doing. Right. Grassroots activism is the future as far as I'm concerned. It, I mean, honestly, it should have always been the way that we do things. But I'm just thankful that we as a nation are kind of getting back towards that model now. You know, being able to speak directly with people about what's going on in your community, locally, nationally, that is a very important thing. I feel like it allows people to be more engaged and understand what's going on politically. I hope that you know more of that continues as we go forward with politics in general you know, in this country. But now kind of transitioning to another topic you and I were talking about earlier uh, is the kind of hypocrisy inside of politics itself. You know, we were talking about the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. You personally, do you think that there is a difference between the two parties as far as one being more corrupt than the other? I know some people think that the Democrats are more corrupt. Some people think the Republicans are more corrupt. Do you personally see a difference? Like, where do you fall in this particular regard? Do you see one party as being worse than the other? I, I, I used to feel like, you know, one party was, was better than the other. Um, but, you know, as, I, as I've gotten older and I really wanted to know more about each party, the history of the party and what they stand for, I find that both of them are shady. And um, remember in our conversation, I told you I like to call myself a, a progressive independent. And the reason I refer to myself as a progressive independent is because I think that Republicans, <clears throat> I think Republicans have some, some great ideas fundamentally. My problem with them is that they don't stand by those ideologies that they pretend to portray to be. Democrats always come across as the good guys. And I felt, I feel like that at times they will do anything to get our votes. But then when they get the vote and they get into their position, they don't do anything for the very people that gave them those votes. So I'm sort of in the middle, but what I truly would like to see are one or two things, either a third party uh, so that we're not level to two parties, you know, making decisions um, for the American people or um, more bipartisanship between both parties, because I think that's what these uh, the Democrats and the Republicans have gotten away from uh, when you look at how it was 20, 30 years ago. Uh, it may not have been exactly what everyone wanted, but there was more partisanship, bipartisanship, and they discussed what was the best or what they felt to be the best thing for the American people. Now it's all about whose side are you on? You know what I mean? Like, who are you backing? Uh, I don't care if that bill is good. Uh, you still, because, you know, they're not one of us, you're going to stay, you should stand with us. And I think that, uh, you know, these two parties have gotten away from that. The gridlock in Washington is absolutely obnoxious. 
I mean, we see this all the time, you know, where there are so many different things in our country that need to be addressed, but at the same time, our politicians seem to be more concerned with trying to own the other side versus finding any sort of compromise that would lead to legislation being passed. And so it's a really just unbelievable state of affairs that we currently find ourselves in where these two parties won't work with each other. But so, yeah, I completely agree. We could definitely use a little bit more bipartisanship just for the sake of just getting something done, right? And it, it probably leads to why so many people like distrust the government in and of itself probably also would lead to people not being so excited for, you know, a Joe Biden presidency. This was, you know, in my opinion, I feel as though Joe Biden was kind of like put into office because not because people were enamored with him, but because we just had to get rid of Donald Trump. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when you look, when you look at Trump, Trump will go down as one of the worst presidents in history. I don't think he can do anything worse than he already has uh, prior to even the events that have occurred that we talked to, that we were talking about with the Capitol building. But uh, he, I feel like he's going to go down as one of the worst, but, yeah, you know, Joe Biden has a, a sketchy past, uh, as all do, po as all politicians do. Um, and I think that sometimes when it comes to politics, or even when it comes to your favorite actor, celebrity, or whoever it may be, that we put these people way up on a pedestal. And so when something, when we hear something that is from their past, or something that they say or do, is brought to someone's attention as that smear campaign, as you know, is really, you know, it's always happening in politics. Um, people tend to say, oh, see, see, this is exactly why I wouldn't vote for this person or this and that. Well, we also have to remember that these people are human. You know, we've all said and done things that when we look back on it, you know, we'd be like, man, I wish I hadn't said that or I could have did this differently. But, you know, that's, that's just the way that it is. People are always going to remember you for uh, more wrong that you've done than anything positive that you can do. Yeah, no, I agree with that completely. You know, just from a, a personal standpoint, though, how do you feel about, you know, the the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris ticket? Were you uh, someone who was just voting for them because they weren't Trump? Or are you actually excited about the potential like presidency of Biden Harris? Um, I wasn't sure about uh, Kamala Harris in the beginning. And it's funny you asked that question, because on my Let's Be Honest podcast, I had brought up the fact that when she was running, there were people that were coming out and saying some very, very negative things about her and her being in the attorney general, how she had an opportunity to uh, release uh, prisoners uh, for you know, like on work release programs and she chose not to. Um, and then there are some other things that were brought up such as, you know, uh, she, she got locked up. Uh, she was locking black people up. We kept hearing that. But let's think about this for a minute, Des, when we look at Kamala Harris. She was an attorney general, obviously, you know, ambitious in what she was doing in her career. But the one thing that people forget about the state that she represented, that's a three, uh, three strikes rule state. Yeah. So if the person, if, if, if she locked up people of color, they had to be at least be on their third strike. No one tells anyone to go out and continue. You know, if you tell me if I get caught once, you know what I mean? And I do it again, I get caught again. And then I get caught again the third time. I don't understand what people think are going to happen. You're going to get locked up because you've broken the law. We've given you three times. So if you continuously go out and break the law, 
then yeah, you're going to get locked up. So she was doing her job. And as far as the release, everyone has a boss that they report to. So who would be, when you think about it, who would be her boss? Her boss would be the governor of that state. If the governor is not comfortable re releasing, um, you know, low, you know, uh, uh, I forgot what they call them, uh, you know, like low level uh, misdemeanors, you know, people that are in jail for misdemeanors or smaller crimes, if the governor is not comfortable with it or it doesn't fit his narrative or his agenda and she and he tells her, nope, we're not doing that. She just goes back and reports the message and that's all that's going to happen. But see, this is what I mean by people don't understand the process. People think she made that decision. That's it. Well, it doesn't work that way in politics. There's always someone um, pushing the envelope or pushing the buttons to determine the outcome of what they think is best. Um, Joe Biden his biggest thing is i think the 93 94 crime bill people yes. like to bring that up all the time right yes so here's the thing about that when that crime bill um started and when people were talking about it this was we were at the heightened era of of uh, of crack right crack had yes. been around since at least 89 right uh probably faded out probably as like the drug probably mid 2000s, maybe I, I don't remember exactly, but let's just say early 2000s, like 2004, 2005, it faded out. Well, during that time, in 94, people of color, black people were already saying, hey, this is plaguing our communities, you know, you have gangs taking over whole neighborhoods and uh, communities, all because of this crack, we need help, been crying out to the government for help, right? Well, it wasn't until crack started seeping over into the white community that now it's a big issue and since it became a big issue now it's in front of congress it's in front of the senate and joe biden happened to be the face of that now here's what people don't know when that bill was created and you can look this up about 10 percent of blacks were uh it was well let me say this it was created federally it was created to be for you know like federal charges but what happened was during that time, only 10% of blacks were locked up um, during that time in the federal uh, penitentiary system. It wasn't until incentives were offered from the government to the states to adapt those laws that, hey, if you take on this law, Des, in your state, we're gonna go ahead and incentivize you and give you millions or billions of dollars for your state over a period of time if you adopt these same laws. Some opted to do it, some opted not to do it. And so what you see on a state level uh, is based on you know, things from uh, in, in, uh, incentivizing states to get money for the state. And so I think a lot of people don't know that. Now, what Joe Biden should have done, and he has, he hasn't done it enough for me, he has spoke about it, um, he did say it was wrong, but let's use our common sense here. Joe Biden had no clue or no way of knowing that in the future, this was going to, you know, cause thousands and thousands of black men to be locked up. Um, he didn't, he didn't know that the, the penitentiary system was going to turn into a business. And um, I think people need to do their research to understand that. And if we're going to hold him accountable for something that he did years ago, back then, then each and every one of us should be held accountable for everything that we have done or said. So think about it. Think about the things that you wish you could have taken back that you said to someone. Think about if you tried to go and purchase a house and someone told you, oh, no, no, we're, gonna, we're not going to give you the house. Nope, I refuse to sell to you because you said X 30 years ago. 
right? You probably look at them like it was crazy, like you were crazy. But um, that's just my opinion. But people really, really should research that because when you think about it, we've all said and made mis mistakes on things. He talked about it a little bit. He just hasn't come out and said it enough. And I think that was the knock that he actually got. You know, that, that's, that brings me to an interesting point. You know, um, there is, I, I am currently living in a community that is mostly white, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. because of that, you know, like friends and, you know, just acquaintances that I've uh, become like intertwined with, you know, are also mostly white in this community. And right. through that, you know, I'm constantly, you know, ironically enough, I'm always seeing uh, posts and memes, you know, by like more like progressive minded people because I live in like a liberal part of this state of uh, always saying like the black community feels this way about crime. The black community feels this way about the police, you know, so on and so forth. I think a lot of white people would be shocked to hear, you know, a person of color defending the 1994 crime bill. And I'm not, I'm not surprised that you are, but like, could you just tell me really quickly, could you explain to some of the people who might be listening? Uh, does the whole community feel the same way about crime in general, about like, I guess, criminal, like law enforcement, about policing, so on and so forth? Because there might be some misconceptions for the white community as a whole about how black people feel about these things. No, I don't think, I don't think they all do. I think that, I, I, I feel like this, I feel that people would more or less say, we just want to be treated equally. We want to be treated fairly. Um, most black people will tell you, they know that there are black people that will rob you and steal from you. You know what I mean? Um, there, you know, uh, but I, I don't think they, uh, I don't think they feel wholeheartedly, um, all people we know, we know that there are good police and there are bad police. Um, you know, it just all depends on your circumstance and your situation, right? If you grew up in a more um, urban neighborhood where crime was a little bit higher because of your circumstance and all you see is police harassing black people, you know, pulling them over for nothing when they're just walking down the street, you're going to feel that way. There's going to be a bias there, right? But if you grew up, you know, in a, in a suburban area, um, you may not feel that way. You might be totally surprised if you were black and you got, you know, harassed by the police based on what, you know, based on how you were brought up. So I certainly understand why some people would feel that way, but I don't think all, all black people feel that way about that. Um, I think a lot of it is misconception because they don't understand that world. They don't understand that circumstance could have put people there. You know what I mean? And you always hear people say, well, if you do this and you do that and you work hard, that will get you out of your circumstance. That's not always true. That's definitely not always true. You know what I mean? You know, so I think a lot of that is what they think people of color are saying or what black, what they think black or think how black people feel. But when you really, really think about it, if they were to sit down and have a conversation with a panel of black people, they would tell you, it doesn't matter if you're black, it doesn't matter if you're white, they just want to be treated fairly. And they don't want to have to have the fear of getting pulled over by police simply because, you know, I'm in a bad or, or I'm, I shouldn't or you feel like I don't belong in that neighborhood, you know. So, yeah, I don't think they I don't think they get that piece of it. No, that makes perfect sense. And you know what, I, I definitely feel as though there are a lot of, you know, misconceptions, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's always strange to me I actually had a, you know, I don't really like publicize what I look like on my on my podcast feed. And I'll right. never forget the uh, the time where I had some like uh, some white ladies come into my feed trying to tell me about how black people were oppressed. And I was like, oh, really? Tell, tell me more about that. 
I just thought that was uh, it was uh, it was an interesting thing. I was just like, oh, okay, you felt the need to tell me about how you feel, huh? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So definitely, thank you for bringing that perspective. I just know that I have mostly like a, a white audience, so I just feel like it's 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 good for them to hear, you know, a little bit outside of the narratives that I've seen just being perpetuated through media. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that being said. Frank, thank you for coming on today. Uh, it was been, it's been a great interview so far. Uh, just really quickly before we get you out of here, could you just tell the people one more time where they can find your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. You can find uh, the 336 Pull-Up Podcast on all um, uh, DSPs, um, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, you name it. If they host podcasts, all you have to do is, all you have to do, is do a search for the 336 Pull-Up Podcast, and you'll actually find it. And um, you can also follow me on Instagram at the 336 Pull Up Podcast or uh, Frank underscore Styles. And Styles is spelled S T Y L Z. Awesome. Definitely go check that out. Again, I'll have that linked in the episode notes below. Uh, definitely go check out his other podcasts as well. Let's be honest for some great interviews on there. And for everyone else, uh, just we will be back in a few moments after the break. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Firstly, I want to say thank you to all 30 of my patrons. I am astounded and humbled that I was able to reach 30 members of my Patreon. Uh, As promised, I have ordered new audio equipment, so I am hoping to have better sound quality in the not-too-distant future. If not next episode, then hopefully the one after that. We'll see how quickly it'll get here. I am not using two-day shipping anymore after learning about how Amazon treats its workers. And while I still feel like I might have to use their services here and there, I'm definitely going to try to ask not to use their two-day shipping because I'm sure that on some level that's probably playing into that rate that those workers are always trying to meet and why they have to pick things so often. I, I, I don't know that to be entirely sure, but I'm just trying to, you know, like give it a little bit of uh, deductive reasoning. And I, yeah, anyway, kind of a side tangent. My point is, is um, new audio equipment is coming. And I want to just go ahead and say that if you are not currently a member of my Patreon, but you are interested in becoming one, the link is in the description. So please just go ahead and scroll up. I would appreciate anyone who wants to join. Uh, Whenever someone does join, it honestly, I mean, on top of it, just being a little bit of validation for the work that I am trying to do, it, it also just helps me spend more time with this. You know, as I'm able to kind of collect more and more uh, donations on the parts of you, the fans, I really am just able to dedicate more time to this every single week and growing this. And hopefully in the not so distant future, I'll be able to bring in another person to help me and maybe put out more content more often, which is the overall goal that I want to do here is turn this into something that I can do on a more consistent basis. Once a week is nice, but twice a week would be better. So hopefully we'll get to that in the future. I want to just quickly say as a wrap up to this episode, 
you know, first, thank you to my guest, Frank Styles, for coming on. We had an amazing conversation. His podcast is great, the 336 Pull-Up. Definitely go check that out. Again, scroll up into the episode notes, into the description. The link is right there. Click on it and away you go. Frank is great. Go check him out on Instagram as well. Definitely a good podcast to follow. Hoping to get you back on in the future, sir. And in regards to the first segment, climate change. This is something that I hate is so polarized. I, I really do. I, I hate that it's so polarizing. I hate that it's so politically based because when you talk about this issue with conservatives, like they will acknowledge to you that climate change is real. This almost always comes down to, for a lot of the people that I know who are conservative, it comes down to the financial side, just about the jobs. And it, like, if that really is the only thing that's keeping a lot of people who are on the right from kind of embracing climate change is just that fear of what's going to happen to these people's incomes, because so many of them have jobs through the fossil fuel industry, then we should be addressing that because that doesn't seem like a huge hurdle to get over. And if climate change is this existential threat that we all claim it to be, then I don't understand why we can't just change our talking points a little bit because it's not like Democrats don't want to address the job concern. It, it, it just seems like a very easy problem to fix and it's not being fixed, which I guess if we're being 100% fair is the story for a lot of issues in our politics, right? So as you are listening to this, and maybe you are somebody who's on the right, or you have family or friends who are, I hope that maybe this episode can kind of bridge that gap a little bit between those who are worried about finances and those who are worried about sustainability and climate change, I'm hoping that we can find a way to come together because we need to address climate change. But moving on from that topic, again, I kind of want to just briefly touch on, you know, how I wanted to do something a little bit lighter this week because of having to address the police in our country last week. That was kind of an emotionally draining topic for me. I spent a lot of time pining over what I was going to say for that episode, getting really nervous uh, before recording it, not wanting to mess up what I was trying to say. You know, sometimes I get some pretty nasty anxiety before I would go to record these episodes because I usually record them in one take. So there are no redos. I try to do it all in one shot perfectly, which is sometimes why you hear me kind of flub up in the middle. I usually don't go back and edit those. Maybe I will in the future. But I just, just didn't even understand how something like qualified immunity still exists in our country. It, it just seems like a no-brainer to get rid of something like that. But it still exists. And unfortunately, a couple days after I put out that episode, yeah, the Chauvin trial came to a verdict. And I was so relieved to hear that that man was going to jail and that he was getting sent, he'll, he'll be sentenced up to 75 years. We'll see how much of that he actually gets. 
there's speculation that he'll be getting, you know, maybe like 30, maybe 40 years. We'll know in eight weeks when the sentencing uh, comes down. But what really got underneath my skin after that happens was the reaction on conservative media and through a lot of, you know, just conservative chatter that I saw, which was people saying like that the jury was bullied into submission, that they were pressured by the mob. Can we just, can I just have a moment really quickly to be 100% honest with all of you? There are times in our politics where I see people being on different sides of an aisle as just a difference in opinion. Like we have a difference in opinion about what we want to do in this country. And, and that's fine. I feel like it's definitely okay to have a difference in opinion. And then I feel like there are times where it's not a difference in opinion. It's just being flat out, I mean, bordering on evil. Because there, in my mind, is just no excuse whatsoever to how someone's mind could go to, yeah, you know, the only reason that this guy was found guilty was because of the mob. Because enough people complained about, you know, about this last summer, so the jury just felt the need to cave to that outside pressure. I'm sorry. So you're saying that you're okay with someone putting their knee on someone else's neck until they die? That's completely acceptable behavior to you? What kind of world are we living in when there are people who think it's completely acceptable for police officers to kill whoever they want to, whatever they want to, and it's not a problem whatsoever? I don't understand how you think. I don't understand how you can come to that conclusion. And that is so detached from any morality that I personally have that I don't even know how to reach you in a conversation. It's frightening to me how many people, you know, were saying things along those lines. And after seeing that, I almost felt the need to do the one thing I'm always telling everyone else not to do, which was get into fights on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. And I just felt myself just like mentally not understanding how to cope with some of the reactions that I saw from people as far as them diminishing basically what this man did. And so I knew I had to take a lighter subject this week, something that wasn't going to be as mentally draining as everything involving the police in this country. You know, but with that being said, there are more words I want to attach to the Chauvin trial, which I will do so in my next episode. So please make sure that you are subscribed if you are not so that you hear that. And for everyone who does feel similar to me, uh, thank you for using your voices online. I am a really big believer that silence uh, may in fact be worse than violence. So 
there is a tremendous amount of change that is taking place in this country. It's not enough, but it's a start. And I'm appreciative of that start. I'm appreciative of people who use their platforms online to speak about things that matter to them. Please do not stop doing that. Now, as I want to kind of close out this episode, I want to say thank you to, to everyone who listened until the end of this episode. And I, I know that not everyone does. I see my stats, so I know that it, it's not everyone, but it's still a pretty good number. So I'm happy about it. So thank you to everyone who does listen all the way to the end of these episodes. You are appreciative. I, I mean, you are appreciated. And I want to say to those of you who have come to the very end here, uh, please leave me a comment on social media. Let me know what in these episodes is working for you and what isn't working for you. And thank you again to everyone uh, out there who listens to Independent Thought. I will see you all next week. Take care.